Paul says, beginning there in verse 20, Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, and he is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. How is it then, brethren? Whenever you come together, each one of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And Father, we humbly ask as we continue to journey through your word, and particularly this chapter of this book, That by your spirit, Lord, every intent and purpose behind why you gave us these things originally, that they would find their way into our hearts to teach us and to instruct us that we might know you and the truths of God better for our lives today. So bless and speak to us now by your spirit's ministry, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, in light of what we see quite chaotically in our society right now, I think it's a good time to remind ourselves that maintaining order is not an enemy. Unfortunately, it seems we're starting to think that, that order is somehow an enemy, when the reality is order is actually what enables success and stability. And God, who knows all on every matter and who loves people greatly, when he works by the power of his Holy Spirit, it is always in a peaceful, harmonious, and in orderly way when he operates. And the reason is because order and structure provide to us boundaries. Boundaries to operate within in a way that is proper and productive and healthy. And it's a degree of order that actually protects us from the challenges of things like chaos and confusion and fear and other unhealthy things. It allows us to enjoy order does in a comfortable way where each one may be blessed and built up and strengthened. And we'll see that is what our text as we finish the 14th chapter is addressing for us today, that when the church comes together collectively in one place in its main gatherings, that worship meetings, the Bible teaches, are to be guided in an orderly way. That there's to be an order and a harmony and a beauty to what takes place. Now, again, remember the background briefly. Paul's been instructing about proper conduct when God's people assemble together. When we come together for gatherings. He's been instructing particularly about the exercising of spiritual gifts in church meetings. And that we should always remember that in public gatherings, we should focus upon showing love to one another, that we might help each other foremost. 
Now, let me quickly summarize, if I can, by just reading a few of the verses that we looked at last week to set the context, because it is very important in the midst of these things. Paul said in the first five verses of chapter 14, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially, he said, that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue, in that gifting, does not speak to men, a message to people, but they're speaking to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But he who speaks prophecies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Look down with me to verse 12. Paul there said, even so, since you're zealous, which is good for spiritual gifts, let it be for, again, what the edification, the building up or strengthening of the church that you seek to excel foremost. And then verse 16 through 19, Paul said, otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, referring there, as we talked about last time, about the gift of exercising, the gift of speaking in tongues, if you bless with the spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed be able to say amen or, hey, I agree with that. I I resonate with what you're saying to God at your giving of thanks since he doesn't understand what you say. For you indeed give thanks well, but, he says, the other that's with you is not edified. I thank my God, verse 18, that I speak with tongues, Paul said, more than you all. I love the gift. I exercise it, Paul says, greatly. Verse 19, he concluded saying, yet in the church, that is when I'm gathered with the collective main gathering of the Lord's people, he says, I would rather, if you give me the option, speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Again, we talked about how the main two priorities of a corporate gathering are to glorify Jesus and to build up others. That that should be the focal point the Bible teaches when we come together for gatherings. And this chapter teaches us a great deal about lovingly remembering that there is a difference between personal worship of God private personal worship of God, which we can do seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and a distinction between times of public gatherings where the people of God assemble together in all different places in their spiritual maturity and understanding, and that we should keep that awareness in the distinction between these two different times of worship, personal worship and public corporate worship. That's a loving and important mindset we should always remember. Paul then therefore goes on, verse 20, to say, Brethren, do not be children, the idea is childlike, in your understanding, the ideas of these things, spiritual gifts and spiritual experiences and church gatherings. However, in malice, which speaks of being harmful to other people, in malice, be babes. I pray that you don't know much about harming or hurting others, but in understanding, he says, be mature. So Paul here gives us an exhortation towards maturity as it pertains to exercising spiritual gifts among the church assembly when we come together. He says, look, please don't be childlike or children in your understanding of these matters. He's saying, I want you to be mature in your perspectives about how the Holy Spirit operates and and how spiritual ministry and the gifts of the Spirit happen and are supposed to be exercised in the collective gathering of the people of God. He says, I don't want you to be immature. Again, God wants us to properly understand how spiritual gifts function. Remember, that was how this whole section began. Paul said, don't be ignorant. Remember chapter 12? Don't be ignorant in this area, the area of how spiritual gifts operate. Instead, he wants us to be mature in how we think and operate regarding the manifestation of the Spirit, to have a mature outlook and attitude and not be childish in our perspectives in regards to the connection of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Now, think with me. What characteristics mark being childlike or being childish? Well, one thing's very obvious. Children prefer what's amusing and entertaining 
over what's useful, right? Is that fair to say? For example, on Christmas, you take a child. If you give to a child a toy that's amusing and that's entertaining, oh, great, a toy, oh, a toy. If you give a child socks and underwear, which is useful, but it's not too amusing or entertaining, oh, Again, children prefer what's amusing and what's entertaining. They like entertaining, amusing things more than useful things. And what an interesting analogy because the Bible is saying, look, don't be childish or or immature. Be mature when it comes to the things of the spirit. Don't hyper-focus on what's entertaining spiritually. What's amusing and wow, it's like a spiritual show. What's more important is what's useful spiritually so you can have a spiritual pep rally on a sunday morning but you got to go back into the real world on monday but if you strengthen and have a time in the spiritual gym if you would on sunday morning and you get built up and strengthened then maybe you can last to wednesday and you got to hit the gym again in my recommendation anyway since we have a wednesday night service but that's what's useful Now, what else characterizes being childlike or childish? Children also prefer what makes them happy rather than thinking about consideration of others, right? Children want to do what they want when they want, and they just want to be able to do what they're interested in, and they usually aren't very good at taking into consideration other people around them. And again, the Bible is saying, don't be childish spiritually. Don't just be the person who in childish immaturity, look, well, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to worship. He said, don't be childish. There are other people gathered with you. This isn't personal worship time. This is public worship time. There's a difference. You're gathered with other people at other layers of spiritual maturity. One person may be here. Another person may be here. Paul's going to say later on, you may even in a church gathering have unbelievers there who've never even heard anything from the Bible. And they're just trying to figure out if God's real. And so he says, don't be like that. Don't not consider others in childishness just because you want to be happy. So again, he's saying be innocent towards harming and stumbling others, but keep a mature mindset that's very, very important, Paul says, in these matters. Now, as we come to verses 21 through 25, these are indeed some complex and challenging verses to get clarity on. In fact, it led to different interpretations. If you read various commentators, I'm going to tell you I'm going to do my best to shed some light on these verses for my study and own understanding and preparation. Let me just say this. In the end, whenever you come to a passage in the Bible, and we do time to time, that seems a little bit more complex in the clarity, you're trying to understand what's really being conveyed there. My highest recommendation would be this. Focus on what is most clear, the main concept, and don't get bogged down trying to pull apart every little tiny detail. Because our little finite minds are limited, as we talked about last time. And a lot of times when we struggle with clarity, it's not there are contradictions in the Bible. I just got contradictions because I don't fully understand everything, and God's much bigger than I am. So a lot of times when you come to a passage, it's a little more challenging to pull the main concept is really a lot of times the most helpful thing. Now, let me just say, as we begin to look at these verses, remember the context. What did Paul say in the prior verse? Don't be immature spiritually, be mature and not childish in regards to exercising spiritual gifts. He then says, verse 21, in the law, he's gonna try and draw an analogy. Now, in the law, it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. And yet, God says, still, for all that, they won't hear me. I want them to hear what I'm trying to say, but they won't listen, he's saying. Therefore, verse 22, tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Now, in verse 21 there, Paul's quoting from Isaiah the prophet. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 28. Yet notice in verse 21, though he's quoting from Isaiah the prophet, he doesn't say it is written in the prophets. Isn't that interesting? Paul says it is written in the law. In the law, it's written. Well, wait a minute. I thought he's quoting from Isaiah. Well, the principle that Isaiah was quoting from in chapter 28 of his prophecy originally came from Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 49, which says this, 
the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the ends of the earth, a nation whose language you will not understand. See, God was predicting a time when his people were not in right relationship with him. They were exercising their activities outside of the boundaries of God's design for things in an unorderly way. They weren't in harmony with God with what they were doing. So God was going to allow a foreign nation to come in as a judgment against them And as these Gentile people came, they would be speaking other languages and it would be a sign of God's power and God's work happening among them at a time when they were operating in an unorderly way. Now, that principle is what Isaiah was then applying when he quoted what he did, which Paul refers to here. He was thinking of that principle when he said these very things. When he then said in verse 21, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to these people, signify or convey something to them. Yet still, he says, they won't hear me. When Isaiah said what he said that Paul's quoting here in chapter 28, he's referring to a time when God had been trying in Isaiah's day to speak to the people of God in a very clear way through the prophet and through others, line upon line precept upon precept god was trying to use very clear simple direct speech but the people did not want to hear what god was saying and they wouldn't accept god's clear clear revelation so god was going to use a foreign nation the assyrians as well as the babylonians we know who would come in as a part of his judgment to show his power and his people would hear languages that they did not know from other nations And God was trying to show his power supernaturally. Now, when Isaiah refers to what he does here in our verse, he was not specifically understand. He was not specifically referring to what we know of as the gift of speaking in tongues. What he was referring to is just the reality that they would hear other languages and those other languages would be a strong sign to them that the supernatural power of God was at work despite their disorderly behavior and that God's spirit was powerfully moving. Now, Paul seems to pick up on this idea to try and draw his own illusion here, because in a similar way, you may fairly say symbolically, that was much like the origin of the gift of speaking in tongues that first came to pass in Acts chapter two, which is why Paul then trying to draw this analogy says, therefore, in a similar way, Tongues, he says, are for a sign, not to those who believe, but they were assigned to unbelievers initially when they first came. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. So in Acts chapter two, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, the establishment of the church and the people began to speak in tongues and all those around them who were from other areas had heard them. We saw it last time speaking the wonderful works of God, magnifying God in their own languages. And many people were hearing this and they were amazed. And in that day, the gift of speaking in tongues first became a sign, if you would, to unbelievers who were around, who were living in an unorderly way in their air. Those tongues signified the supernatural power of God's spirit. They signified to people that the times of the Gentiles were now beginning and that these unbelievers were rejecting God's clear revelation in the way he was trying to speak to them, just like in Isaiah's day. He had been trying to speak to them in the clearest way through the person of Jesus, representing God in front of them, and yet they had been ignoring that. So at Pentecost, times were changing. People were ignoring. They weren't hearing God's voice. Yet for those whose spiritual tension was awakened when the spirit was poured out and wanted to hear God and wanted to believe, what does Peter do in the rest of Acts chapter two? He prophesies unto them. To those who wanted to hear God's voice, Peter did not pray in tongues in front of the crowd. Instead, Peter prophesied to the crowd. He spoke the word of God to them using clear and direct speech, applying scripture and preaching the gospel to the people. The point I believe Paul is making is prophecy is most helpful. It is what is most beneficial. 
It is what is most useful to someone who believes or truly wants to believe because it is clear, direct speech from God. Where a person can clearly hear as a believer what God is trying to say because clear and direct speech is always God's ideal. That people may clearly understand what God is trying to say. Now, Paul carries this idea into the context of routine church gatherings. This idea that the best thing to do is have clear, understandable speech so that those who want to hear God can clearly hear God. They're not confused and they have the best chance to respond and to believe what God is saying. Paul carries that idea now into the routine church gathering in verse 23, where he says, therefore, in light of that concept, if the whole church comes together in one place for a worship gathering, a church meeting. If the whole church comes together in one place, he says, and all speak with tongues. Everybody erupts at the same time, praying in tongues collectively, simultaneously. Have you ever been to a church like that? I have before. I've been in church meetings like that where everybody prays in tongues all at the same time. Well, that's what the Bible's saying here. If the whole church comes together in one place, Apparently, this is what would happen in Corinth and all begin speaking with tongues and there come in those who are uninformed. That is, they don't understand spiritual gifts. They could be believers, but they're uninformed. When you first got saved, did you know anything about spiritual gifts? I didn't until I learned about them, right? So if someone's there who doesn't understand spiritual gifts yet, or he says, if there are unbelievers who have visited and attended the church service that day and everyone in the service is praying in tongues, will they not say, verse 23, the Bible says that you are out of your mind. The idea is that they will, what in the world is this? What, this is why I've never gone to church. What's happening here? This, I finally come to church and this is what happens in a church. And he says, they may look at that and feel like, man, these people are really confused. I don't understand any of this. These people sound like they're out of their mind. What's going on here? When I first came in, everybody was talking. Now everybody's praying in all these multitudes of languages, and it would just make them feel the idea is very uneasy. That is, if everybody starts praying in tongues, whether it's legitimate exercise of the gift or not, we're not discounting that, but if everybody starts praying in tongues out loud at the same time, Maybe trying to imitate Pentecost. That's what we need to do. If we just get Pentecost-like and we all pray in tongues at the same time out loud, because that's what's spiritual, he says, then what may happen is the unbeliever, the unsafe person, or the uninformed person not familiar, when they experience that going on, they may say, whoa, are these people out of their minds? The idea is they're uncomfortable. They're confused. They're perplexed. They're even distracted. And they may, sadly, even steer clear of ever wanting to go to a church again. And then they don't even hear the gospel. Or they don't have a chance to grow in their relationship with God because they're so uneasy about what transpired. So Paul says, verse 24, but in contrast, if all prophesy, which is what? If people are speaking the word of God, if they prophesy and an unbeliever or the uninformed person comes into the church he will be convinced by all and convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Now, you notice the major contrast in the outcome. The first one sounds like these people are out of their mind. They're very uncomfortable and they may just steer clear. The second person, look at the end result. When everybody is to some degree trying to communicate the word of God, a teaching, sharing scripture with one another, that's more helpful and beneficial. I mean, look at the multiple benefits he describes of people hearing the clear word of God, his voice speaking. He says the end result of that, he mentions at least four things, is it causes people to be, verse 24, convinced of what's true. Isn't that what we want people to experience when they come to church? They become convinced of what's true, of what's biblically accurate and to hear God's truth. And he says, not only do people become convinced of what's true, but when they hear the word of God, they also become convicted. That is, they become challenged and spiritually convicted of personal error or sin in their lives. That's something else God wants to happen. 
That comes through hearing the word of God. He also mentions verse 25, that people will be confronted regarding private issues that God exposes. Look what he says, verse 25, when they hear the word of God, the secrets of his heart will be revealed. And so falling down on his face, he'll worship God and say, truly God is among you. The idea is as the word of God is just being shared, the clear, understandable speech of scripture or a prophetic word that someone may share, the Holy Spirit convicts and convinces him and even reveals things in his personal life or in the, in the lady's personal life that's listening. And all of a sudden they go, how in the world could anybody know that? Is somebody running surveillance on me? Yeah, God is. God's running surveillance. And so when God speaks, God can put his finger on something and reveal a secret that's going on in your life. And look, who's never experienced that before? When you're hearing a teaching or you're listening to a Bible study and all of a sudden it's like God is clearly revealing something going on in your life, right? And you're thinking, oh my goodness. Well, that's because that's God speaking. And then you know it's God speaking. And what happens? The end result is you realize God is real. See, he says, that'll be the difference. They'll fall down on their face and they end up worshiping God, not being afraid or, or awkward or confused about God. They fall down and worship and say, God is among these people. I sense the presence of God there because they heard the voice of God communicating them through the scripture. Paul says, verse 26, how is it then, brethren? He's gonna kind of bring this to a conclusion. How is it then, he says, that whenever you come together there at the church at Corinth, it seems that each one of you has a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, an interpretation. Paul says, let all things be done, the proper thing, for, again, edification, building and strengthening one another spiritually. So Paul's concern in verse 26 it seems that he's kind of confronting them about at the church of Corinth is that everybody felt the need to kind of always share their talent, their idea. It's almost as if you can sense Paul saying in verse 26, how is it that everybody in the church meeting always wants to be in the act? Why is it there at Corinth when you come together for a church gathering? It's like everybody wants their turn on the stage they want their part in the play. Hey, I have something to share. I have a part in the play that I'd like to contribute. Paul's saying, look, that's not always necessary. That's not always essential. He says, instead, what should be concerning is what builds everybody up the best. And this was a problem at the church of Corinth and how they were functioning. That's why Paul's writing these things to them correctively. Everybody, it seems, wanted the opportunity to be able to speak out during the meetings kind of maybe in a little unhealthy way to kind of have the spiritual spotlight. Everybody was kind of longing for their platform, if you would, to be able to do their thing spiritually, their revelation or their psalm or their word from the Lord or to be able to pray in tongues or prophesy. And Paul says, look, that, that gets out of balance. Let everything be done, he says, for edification. Now, what Paul's gonna do in light of making that point is he is now going to very clearly in the word of God offer guidance to actually regulate, and, and, and I'm using that word for real, to regulate the proper ministry of the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying, look, the same spirit of God that's operating these gifts and these experiences is the same spirit of God who gives to us what? The word of God, and, and there's never a contradiction. And so now the word of God given to us by the spirit of God says, look, here are some biblical parameters for meetings. Here are some governing principles to regulate spiritual experiences so that they can be free to happen, but they stay in biblical parameters so that things stay decent and orderly in a beautiful way among the people of God. Paul then goes on to say to us, verse 27, writing, he says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, so if that does become a part of a gathering, he says, let there be, look, he says, two and at the most three. And then he says, and each in turn, not like what he referred to up there in verse 23, where the whole church would simultaneously pray in tongues together at the same time out loud. Paul says, no, no, no. Two at the most in a given meeting, three people, 
and each in turn, one at a time, and let another interpret. So not all simultaneously. If it happens, he says there should be a sequence to it. It should be orderly, one person at a time, two at the most three in any given meeting should ever do such, he says. And there must also, he mentions, be one there present to interpret. And why is that? Well, he's going to talk about that more in a moment, because if the gift of exercising speaking in tongues operates in a meeting and there is no interpretation, it is not useful and it actually can become even a disruption. And so this is why the Bible gives us these guidelines. He says, going on, verse 28, look, but if there is no interpreter, if no one has the gift of interpretation in that gathering, particularly, and he says, if there is no interpreter, then let the person who has the gift of speaking in tongues keep silent in church. Notice, I have that circled, in church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Another translation, I think, gives better clarity to this. They render verse 28 this way, another translation. But if no one is present who can interpret in the meeting, they must be silent in your church meeting and speak in tongues to God privately. So notice the clear biblical regulation for the meeting. If there's no one with the gift of interpretation, then the gift of exercising tongues should cease in that meeting. Wait a minute, man, you're quenching the spirit. No, 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 look, look what the Bible says. He says, if there's no interpreter, you exercise self-control, you don't exercise that gift in that meeting out of love for others. But notice, they can still pray in tongues. Do you see what he says at the end of the verse? He says, let him keep silent, quietly in church, and let him just speak privately to God and to himself, because that's what the gift is. We talked about it last time. In other words, you can keep praying in tongues the whole meeting long. Just don't do it out loud. Just do it quietly between yourself and God. You can keep praying in tongues as long as you want to. Just don't do it out loud, he says, in front of others, because if they can't receive an interpretation or understand, it will just be a distraction rather than something useful. Again, as we said last time, this is one of the primary reasons, I believe, that the foremost usage of the gift of speaking in tongues, which I openly admitted I exercise myself, is primarily most useful in our personal worship life together with God because we're speaking between ourselves and God in a manner of worship. Verse 29, he goes on to add for emphasis of order, let two or three prophets speak and let others judge. So again, two at the most, three in a given meeting are to share a word from the Lord, whether it's a teaching that's been prepared, whether it's sharing the word of God that someone has put upon their heart or reading of a scripture, something of that nature. And he says, and even when prophecies are given, notice he says that the others, as they listen, evaluate. The idea is discern in a judging way, not to judge other than, is that valid? Does that line up with scripture? Does the spirit of truth within me bear witness that that prophetic word or that teaching is of the spirit of the Lord? We're supposed to do that. The Bible tells us to do that. Again, how do we judge prophetic words? How do we judge a scripture where somebody says, I believe the Lord put this on my heart to share? Well, again, first of all, using the written revelation of scripture, right? The Holy Spirit gave to us the word of God. So any prophetic word, any teaching should always be consistent with the entirety of the word of God. If it contradicts the word of God, then we don't necessarily need to be you know, embracing that. The Bible tells us to... Let people prophesy, don't despise prophecies, but it says, but do what? Test all things and only hold fast to what's good. Hey, that lines up with scripture. I believe that may be something from the Lord. If it doesn't, then we don't have to embrace it as being from the Lord. And 1 Corinthians 14, 3, we saw last time, tells us that it should be characterized by edification, exhortation, and comfort if it's a spirit-led prophecy. Paul then says, verse 30, but if anything is then revealed to another, that is somebody may be speaking on behalf of the Lord, if anything's revealed to another, let the first, he says, keep silent, for you can all prophesy one by one that all can learn and all can be encouraged. So notice verse 30, the clear instruction here, again, of orderly function, not chaotic outbursts, not sporadic speaking, 
that if the Lord puts something on another person's heart, the Bible says, then the first person should cease speaking so that now the other person in an orderly way can begin speaking and so that everything can be heard that God may be wanting to share. Now, to me, by way of application, this requires something of all of us as God's people when we come together. That means that we need to seek to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. Even in regards to when we have a meeting time or a prayer time or Wednesday nights, we kind of worship and wait on the Lord at the end of the service and try and be more open during those times there in that gathering. We need to be open, but recognize we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading and our potential capacity to quench, listen, to quench the Holy Spirit because of our human spirit. And we don't ever want to, none of us, dominate or monopolize the time during a meeting of the Lord's people. So it is, you might fairly say, just as spiritual to know when to be sensitive to keep silent as it is to speak on behalf of the Lord. It is just as spiritual at times to cease speaking as it is to continue speaking. A lot of times we see very spiritual, oh, the Lord's putting some in my heart. I know he's putting some in my heart. I need to share. Or the Lord wants me to pray. The Lord wants... and, and sometimes the Bible is telling us that it is just as spiritual to know when to cease from speaking or to not speak because maybe God wants someone else to share or to pray or to communicate something. You know, there's a story told years ago of uh, one of D.L. Moody's gatherings, and he had this great campaign meeting. And at the end of it, he invited someone to come up and to close in prayer. And the gentleman came to the podium, and he started praying. And then he kept praying, and he kept praying, and he kept praying. And after a while, Moody walked up to the podium where he was and leaned into the microphone and said, while Brother Smith continues his conversation with God, the rest of us will now sing our closing hymn. And the idea was you should have stopped talking a long time ago. This isn't your private prayer time. This is a public meeting. <laughs> you're monopolizing all the time. You can talk to God 24 hours a day when you're alone, but this is a public meeting. That was the idea. Again, we need to learn to be sensitive to this reality. That's why he says there, verse 31, you can all prophesy one by one that all can learn and be encouraged. So he says, look, there's plenty of opportunity for everybody one by one to speak and all be encouraged to share what's on their heart at times. Now, let me just say, I think sometimes that may mean it's not even necessary to speak what's on our heart at times during the main meeting or in the presence of everyone else listening. Sometimes some of the most helpful things that we share prophetically, a word of knowledge, word of wisdom, happen in the fellowship times that are a part of the overall meeting when we're having one-on-one -on -one conversations or group conversations, that those are some of the times where a lot of fruitful spiritual ministry happens. And it doesn't always have to be in the room where everyone else hears what I'm saying. I believe the gifts of the Spirit often happen in a very supernaturally natural way. That is, as we're talking and fellowshipping and we just share something the Lord's put on our heart and it becomes a prophetic word that really blesses and builds a brother up. Or maybe God gives a word of wisdom in the midst of a conversation that offers great counsel from God. And a lot of times these gifts of the Spirit are transpiring in a very supernaturally natural way. Again, what's God's goal in all this? He says that all may learn and all may be encouraged. That's God's goal in a worship gathering that people are able to learn spiritually and to be encouraged in the things of the Lord. Look, that is one of the reasons why we order our main worship gatherings here at church the way that we do, because we want all to be able to learn something and to be encouraged spiritually in their time when they assemble with the people of God. Well, Paul here, speaking of the need to be silent at times, alludes to this further in verse 32, saying, and the spirits of the prophets, as the inner person of the one speaking on behalf of God, are subject under the control of the prophets. So again, this idea of being orderly in meetings, being silent at times, or ceasing from speaking, trying to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, the Bible makes it clear, notice verse 32, that we never lose control when we are under the leading 
of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We never, ever lose control. We have the ability when the Spirit is working through us to stop speaking at any time. It is subject to our own will. We have the power and choice to cease or to be silent. We have full control of ourselves when we do speak and when we don't speak. How we behave and how we don't behave. One translation remembers this. Remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can take turns. Again, as I said last week, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us with his anointing and his power, you don't enter into some altered state of consciousness where all of a sudden you lose complete control and you just become a puppet and the the Holy Spirit just in an irresistible way takes over you and you say or do things in a way where I just, I couldn't help it. The Spirit made me do that. No, that's not what the Bible teaches, which the Holy Spirit inspired. The Bible says, no, that's not true. The mind is fully engaged. The will is completely involved. Yes, there's power and anointing, but the mind and the will are engaged the whole time, and a person has complete control. The Spirit never forces us to do things. makes me very sad when at times people blame the Holy Spirit for certain things, when perhaps it could just be their human spirit and they weren't exercising the self-control, which is the fruit of the spirit, according to what the word of God says. So again, we don't want to give the Holy Spirit a bad rap. We need to be open, right, to operating in the power of the spirit. The church needs the power of the spirit. And whenever we decide to yield ourselves to such, uh, we do it in an orderly way. We don't have to be disruptive. We don't have to break in a harmonious way what God's spirit is doing. We want to be careful we don't, in fact, quench the Holy Spirit because we're operating in some disorderly way. He says to us, verse 33 here, for God, notice, is not the author, the origin of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So notice, God does not orchestrate nor give birth to chaos, to confusion, to disorder, God is not the author of disruption and distraction. God's never going to lead a person by the power of his spirit to do something that is awkward, that is disruptive, that's weird, that's confusing to others who are in the presence of such. The Holy Spirit is never going to cause that type of activity when he is at work, especially if he is already at work in other ways of ministry. So, for example, in a simple analogy, We believe that when the word of God is being taught, that there is a spiritual gift of teaching. And so therefore the Holy Spirit is at work through the teaching of the word of God, exercising a gift to build up and strengthen the people of God. Well, if the Holy Spirit is in the midst of doing that, the Holy Spirit is not schizophrenic. He's not going to interrupt what he's already doing as someone disruptively says, well, I have a a word from the Lord and I like, God's not going to do that. He says, God's not the author of confusion. God is the author of what's peaceful and harmonious. He's going to say that at the end of our chapter. Again, if you just think of the analogy, when the spirit came upon Jesus, remember, he came upon Jesus in the form of what? A dove. What's a dove representative of? What's peaceful, beautiful, harmonious, gentle, the idea there. The Holy Spirit is not going to make a person act like a duck. Quack, quack. The Holy Spirit is not going to do that. He didn't come upon Jesus in the form of a hummingbird, you know, hyperactivity or in the form of a hawk, you know, just, you know, fierce and dominant. No, a dove, beauty, harmony, gently, but yet powerfully at the same time, the life of the spirit works again, because divine power can be at work and there can still be a very beautiful peacefulness to the power of God being at work. God's desires for order to be included in healthy worship gatherings. Now, with that context, he then goes on, verse 34, to say, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. But they are to be submissive, as the law also says, and if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Now, at this point, I'm going to cease speaking, and Rick would like to... Share what the Spirit has put on his heart. (laughs) Context. 
what is the Bible speaking to us about? Order in gatherings, and most specifically, remember, when prophetic words are giving, are being given in an orderly way, and he says, and judge and pay attention, are those genuine prophetic words from the Lord? Is that genuinely of God's spirit? Again, directing church meetings in an orderly way. Now, with that backdrop, he says, verse 34, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but are to be submissive as the law also says. Let me begin by just clearly stating what these verses do not mean. They are not a blanket prohibition that women cannot speak in a church assembly meeting. In this exact same letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Bible assures and assumes it's totally acceptable for women to pray and to prophesy. It speaks of it in chapter 11. Prophecy and speaking a word from the Lord is not gender specific. The Bible references women praying in church gatherings and even offering at times a prophetic word in the midst of a church gathering. Yet that chapter says it's to be done under the proper authority of the covering of male leadership. That is male leadership governing the church, as First Timothy speaks about, as well as the covering of male leadership if it's a married woman. That women are clearly given the freedom to partake and participate in speaking in church gatherings, yet it's to be done in an orderly manner to honor God's design. So these verses cannot be taken as a blanket prohibition against women speaking in a church gathering. What the verses are conveying, let your women keep silent, that is the term is to use restraint and control in speaking in a particular area in the church, in the gathering, for they're not permitted, the idea is God hasn't given to them authority, here's an interesting word, to speak. That word speak in the original language, laleo, means to utter words that declare one's mind or thoughts on a particular matter. It was a term, laleo, that spoke of communicating in a manner to debate or prove what you think is right on a given subject. And he says, this is what should not be happening, but instead that they should, women, be submissive, that is under the authority of the male leadership in the church and their husbands, they should not, the idea is, be the one in the role of judging and evaluating prophetic words, directing the affairs of how the church gathering is ordered. He's saying women are to respectfully allow their husbands and the male leadership in the church to fulfill their God-given function in that area and to handle such matters. It is the role of men, scripturally, by God's design and order as spiritual leaders, to take responsibility for those things. So it's in that manner, not speaking as an authority on a particular subject, for proper order in church meetings, he says, in this way, women should be silent within the churches and be submissive. It appears that the women in the church of Corinth were operating out of order, and this was causing confusion. In fact, I think Paul's addressing specifically what may have been happening in verse 35 when he says, if they want to learn something, was that of God or not of God? If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. That would be less disruptive. For it's shameful for women to speak in the church. It seems, according to ancient custom, if you do a little research, they in assemblies typically would sit all of the males on one side and all the females on the other side. So you could picture what happened. Somebody shares a word from the Lord, and the ladies are all sitting over here. And, and the lady thinks to herself, I don't know, was, was, I don't know if that was from the Lord. I'm not, was that really in line with, with the word of God? And, and so maybe she starts chatting it up with her sister, and it's getting a little bit disruptive. She's trying to learn, but it's becoming disruptive. Or, I don't know, some believe maybe she was saying, hey, Fred, do we believe what that guy said? And it was creating this lack of etiquette and this shameful, awkward, disorderly conduct. And Paul says, no, 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 we need to get this under control. <laughs> the meeting needs to be orderly. If they want to learn, they can just ask their own husbands at home instead of shamefully lacking etiquette and disrupting the church gathering. Now, to me, let me just say this as well. That also implies that men should be mature enough spiritually to be able to answer their wives' questions spiritually, to be able to help them 
learn the word of God, to help them understand things spiritually, he says they should ask their husbands and they can talk through these spiritual matters at home. He then goes on to say to us, verse 36, or did the word of God originate from you? Or was it only you that it reached? Look, Paul, I think knowing he was going to get some pushback from what he's just said in this chapter, and definitely what he just said in the last two verses, he says, look, I'm just hiding behind the word of God. He said, did you author the word of God? Did it originate with you? Or did you receive the word of God and therefore you're under the authority of God's word? Which one is it, Paul says? They weren't the authority. God and his word were the authority and they needed to have a teachable spirit to be able to receive correction because things had gotten a little bit out of order there. He says, verse 37, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet, or someone who's spiritual, let him acknowledge, he says, that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. So Paul says, if somebody thinks that they're spiritual, let them prove it by their respect for the scripture itself, that I'm giving to you commandments from the Lord, apostolistic doctrine, and this should be something that was embraced and subordinate uh, to, to in their life. Again, spiritual experience must always be subject to the scripture. This is very important. We always subject our experiences to what the scripture says. Never the opposite. We never say, well, I mean, I, mean, I had this incredible experience. I mean, I know the Bible says this, but this experience felt so real. God says, no, 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 no. The experience must be subject to scripture. We never put the experience over scripture and say, well, I had this experience, even though the Bible says that. No, he says it's the opposite. We are to put the word of God as the governing thing over our lives in a proper way. Paul says, verse 38, you have to love his attitude. But if anyone is ignorant, he says, just let them be ignorant. (laughs) In other words, Paul says, if they want to ignore God's word because they think they're right, then Paul says such a person has just shown their ignorance that they're ignoring God's word. Verse 39, therefore, brethren, he says, desire earnestly to prophesy. Don't forbid to speak with tongues. Paul says we need the power of the spirit, most certainly. But let all things be done decently and in order. That word decently there means gracefully or harmoniously. To be done in order means by arrangement and not sporadically. It also could be translated at the appropriate time for such things. That's beautiful. God says, look, these experiences of the Spirit's power, we need them. Let them transpire among the churches, he says. But let them happen in a way where they're decent, it's graceful, it's harmonious. And he says that it happens at the appropriate time. There's an appropriate time for certain things spiritually. And he says, these are the things that matter. Why? Because he says, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. That's one of the ways that we can always tell what is of the spirit and what's not of the spirit in worship meetings and look in our own personal lives. God doesn't create confusion. Where there is confusion, chaos, confusion, confusion, that's not God. God is a God of peace and a God of order and we need to respect God's design. Let's stand together.